sermon today is taken from Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It's a difficult text we look at. This is apocalyptic writings. It's prophetic writing about the future. And uh, we ask God to guide us and direct us as we look into this text. So let's pray for that. Ask God to be our teacher. Would you bow with me for just a moment? Lord, we look to you now to instruct us, to teach us through the Holy Spirit. May our hearts be open to it. Reveal your will to us, Lord, for our lives and for the future. We anticipate, we look forward to, we desire the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and power and glory to reign and to rule over this earth. Father, guide us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you, uh, as I begin, a question. What really bothers you in your life? I'm not talking about difficult people that you bump into or negative outside influences like politics or sports or whatever it is that irritates you. I'm asking about those things in your own personal life that drive you crazy. Maybe it's the diet that you're on that you just can't stay on. Or a failed relationship that cannot be repaired. Or about the dream job that you lost or about the mistake that you made that just can't be rectified in many ways, or any way. Some of these things bother us so much that we can't get them off our minds. We keep ruminating on them, going over and over on them in our heads and our thinking. For believers, I think it might be our failures in the spiritual life, our failures in prayer, our failures in witnessing. It It could possibly be the guilt that we feel and the failures that we've had to study the Bible as we know we should. Or it could be a bad habit. Some of us still have bad habits that we haven't been able to break. Smoking or swearing or the lack of self-discipline in eating. There are issues that just gnaw away at us. Deep down inside we all have these personal failures that that bother us. If we're not careful, dwelling on such failures can derail our spiritual lives. You see, the Bible teaches that we're not to be ruled by our past, but by the Lordship of Christ. But the problem is the way in which we're wired. Our minds want us to remember and focus on those things which we have failed at or which are incomplete. We tend not to remember the successes of this life, the things that we have finished. That is, of course, unless you're Donald Trump, and then all you do is brag about him. But this condition of focusing on things that we have failed at or have failed to complete is called the Zygarnik effect. Believe it or not, it's, called, it's named by a Russian researcher from the 1930s. It's the psychological fixation that we have on incomplete tasks or failures. Our brain just won't let those things go. Have you ever sat up in your bed at at night and sort of slapped yourself across the face? You just remembered something that you were supposed to do and didn't do. You've realized that there's an unfinished task 
Well, maybe not. But our brains, the way that they are wired, we tend to compartmentalize things. We wash away memories that we no longer need to hold on to and sort of clog up our thinking. Like an old soldier, those things just fade away. But you see, the brain also has no closure. Some things just remain active in our mental priority list. The brain wants, the brain wants to process and move things to an inactive status, but those incomplete tasks or those failures find no closure. The brain just continues to spin those memories like a computer that's trying to boot up but can't. If you're careful, the organic effect will play havoc in your spiritual life. We tend to want to hold on to and replay those things that we have failed at in our lives. We find it difficult to forgive ourselves for the past. Even if we understand that God forgives us, we allow our brokenness to control us. Does that at all sound familiar to any of you? Have you experienced an inability to go on after some fall? To forget about things and move on past them. Perhaps that's Satan's way of keeping us in bondage to him. The way we deal with such failures can determine whether or not we move forward into the abundant life. As you know, the Jewish people experienced failure quite often. <laughs> they failed to obey the law, to, the, to obey the, the Lord. And he moved them out of the promised land into exile. But then the Lord, responding to the cries of his people, arranged for Cyrus of Persia to allow them to return by his decree. However, once there, those tapes began to play again on their heads, and the pressures and the circumstances caused them to fail at the task once again that God had given them. They were told to rebuild the temple of God. But they quit in the middle of the task. So the Lord sent them prophet after prophet to remind them to finish what they had started, the Zarganic effect. It just kept playing over and over again in their heads. One of those prophets was Zechariah. He had a series of visions that he wanted to share with the people of God for them to move past their failures and to finish what God had called them to do. You'll remember that he experienced these visions as he stood upon the foundations of the ruined temple looking down into the ravine. Now he turns around and he looks into the city of Jerusalem where he can see straight into the temple courts because the walls of the temple are no longer there. And Joshua, the high priest of Israel, is ministering before the Lord's presence. You'll also recall that in the first three visions of Zechariah, the Lord had shown his people how he had sovereignly arranged for their release from captivity in Babylon in order that he might show them the glorious future that he had for them if they would just obey. There would be a glorious rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. It would overflow with people and blessing. Now in this fourth vision that Zechariah experiences... The Lord will deal with this internal issue of failure after failure on the Jewish people. He will show them that they need a cleansing of sin and a reinstatement to proper worship. He will do this through the, through the imagery, the figure of Joshua the high priest standing as an example of all the people. 
He will show them that God's program for Israel includes not only the reestablishment of the holy city and the people to it as well, but that he will bless them in their worship. They will know peace and security and the Lord's blessing. Now the Lord works on the behalf of his people. In this vision, the Lord cleanses them and then he empowers them and he enables them to do his will. Bear in mind, this is a very figurative portion of scripture. Each of these visions are meant to complete one whole composite. Each of the visions complements the other. It is a picture of a coming wonderful, blessed future. The Apostle Peter gives us this reminder in his epistle that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. So therefore, we need to interpret the Bible not in and of itself alone, but in the context of the fuller writings of all the prophets and all of those who pen scripture. Zechariah shares what we might compare to a courtroom scene in which God is sitting on his throne as the judge. Satan is the prosecuting attorney or the accuser of the brethren. Jesus is the advocate of the believers, the court-appointed defense attorney, if you will. And the remnant of Israel is on trial along with Joshua by the accusations, or through the accusations of the evil one. As you know, the Jewish exiles had been born in Babylon. All of those of the previous generation, for the most part, were gone. So there wasn't much religious instruction going on amongst the people of Israel. Their lack of knowledge and lack of practice of their faith tested their relationship with God. So Joshua is a figure that stands for the people of Israel. And we find Joshua in the dock, if you will, the defendant. He is there as a representative. The Jews, instructed by God to be a holy nation of priests, had been anything but that. So, with that as our setting, would you turn with me now to Zechariah chapter 3. We pick up with verse 1. And this can be found on page 942 of the Pew Bible. In verse 1, we will see the cleansing and the clothing of the high priest of Israel, Joshua. We read, Then he showed me, Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, or the Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. The first question we might ask is, who is he in this verse? Then he showed me. Well, as in previous chapters, there was an interpretive angel that showed these visions to Zechariah and then explained them to him. So Zechariah is looking into the temple where he sees Joshua, the high priest, with a group of figures. Now, you need to understand, if if you're somewhat biblically illiterate, That this is not Joshua, the general of the Exodus. This is not the great Joshua that we always hear of. This is another Joshua, 500 years later. This is Joshua, the high priest. And he's named here as the son, he will be named here as the son of Jehoadak. 
He's functioning as the high priest of Israel because he came from a priestly family and he was one of the 24 Levitical families. He was part of that that had been set forth in 1 Chronicles chapter 24 to be high priests over the people. His name is significant and I think Joshua is effectively used here because his name means God saves. God saves. When it's brought into the New Testament, into Greek, it's translated as Jesus. You'll recall that the angel would appear to Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, and say to him, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the name Joshua is very appropriate as the high priest to, to be figurative of all the people. Joshua also prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ's coming. He foreshadows Jesus in his high priestly office. In this text, God will reinstate Joshua to lead worship over the nation of Israel so that they can once again experience the blessings of God, the blessings he meant for them. For just a moment, look back to verse 1 and focus in on that first phrase, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, if you read that, it doesn't really make much difference to you. But look at how many times the word standing is used in this chapter. Notice it, circle it, highlight it. It's found twice in verse 1, and then standing is found in verses 3, 4, 5, and 7. Obviously, we're being told something important here when the word standing is used. For when priests ministered before God... They always stood. They were standing to do their priestly work. Now, if you know anything about being in the presence of God, when people saw God, they weren't standing. They were usually prone. They were flat on their face, right? Or they were bowed before him. But the priests stood. They were standing in the presence of God. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we read, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry out the Ark of the Covenant, to stand before the Lord and to serve him in that day. Over in Judges, we read that Phinehas, Aaron's son, stood before the ark to minister. In Ezekiel 44, we read the same thing. The Levitical priests who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me shall come near to me to minister and they shall stand before me. So clearly... Joshua is pictured here standing doing his ministerial function, his priestly function. He's standing in the midst of God, ministering to him. And who's there with him? I think it's kind of amusing. Pictured standing to his right is the Satan. Typically, the right-hand side of a man is... uh, Reserve for his best follower, his right-hand man. But here on his right is the accuser. I think that's the way Satan often works. He appears to be somebody who's supporting us in our Christian life when in actuality he's accusing us. So we're getting the feeling here as we read through this text, and we find it in many other texts, in the book of Romans, for example, that this is the courtroom 
This is a courtroom setting in which the defendant, in this case Joshua, standing in for the people of God, are standing before the judge and the Satan is accusing them of all sorts of crimes of infidelity. And it's interesting in Hebrew that the name here for the evil one is actually the accuser. It's translated as Satan, but as you know, Satan means uh, accuser. And in the original Hebrew text, it has the definite article, so it's not Satan, but the Satan, or the accuser. It would be better translated. Now, that title, Satan, came to be used later on in Judaism. We find it many times in some of, uh, some of the later writings of the minor prophets, but it came into full use in the New Testament. Satan is the one who accuses the people of God. The Bible always pictures Satan as having unfettered access to the very presence of God. We see that in the book of Job, where he enters into the third heaven to accuse Job of not being a righteous man. And then in the book of Revelation, the evil one is again standing in the presence of God, making accusations against the brethren. There it says, day and night. So it shouldn't really surprise anyone when the devil talks trash about us, should it? Jesus said that Satan was a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. You know, it really distresses me when candidates for the President of the United States throw that term about, about others. Trump is called Ted Cruz, Lion Ted. You know, I think that really dishonors the use of the word liar, since the liar from the beginning is the devil. Why would you want to connect anyone with the devil? We need to be very careful how we use words, and those people that we empower should use words correctly. Just as the accuser here stands before the righteous throne of God and defiles the people of God, calling them names. When I go home for lunch, you know, I live over in the parsonage now with my lovely crippled wife. Sue and I will watch television as we eat lunch. We pray first, of course. We, I like to watch Hot Bench. Do you ever watch that? It's a program that people come to seek justice from a panel of three judges. It amazes me how they will stand and defile and call one another names. Usually it's former lovers or former friends fighting over some insignificant amount of money. But it effectively illustrates for me how sinful people really are. The Lord, of course, knew this. Satan has an airtight case against the Jews and against Joshua. Except he's forgotten one thing. He's forgotten one important little detail. The grace of God. After the testimony is all given on hot bench, the panel of three jurists will retire to consider that testimony and evidence, and then they will render their decision. The Lord doesn't need to deliberate about Joshua. He doesn't need to weigh the evidence of the accusations of Satan. There's no reason to do so. 
No matter how many mistakes the Jews have made, no matter how unfaithful they have been, look with me at verse 2, where the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebukes you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. It is not, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What in the world does that mean? I don't know. But don't you hate waiting for a verdict? Some of you are old enough, I know Johnny is, to remember the OJ trial. Remember waiting for the verdict to come on that? Or the Menendez brothers, or whatever trial of the century it is this week? Our dear sister Carol in the back has done a a lot of waiting for verdicts as an attorney. No need to wait for a verdict here. The judge renders his decision right here and now, and he rebukes the prosecuting attorney. He rebukes the prosecuting attorney, and in fact accuses him of prosecutorial misconduct. You see, it should have been obvious to everyone that Joshua was not guilty. The Jewish people were not guilty before God. The allegations of wrongdoing against Joshua and Israel certainly might have been true, but they had been dismissed. They had been dealt with. Why? Why were the charges dropped? Israel was certainly guilty. So why does the prosecutor get rebuked? Well, we're told here. Look back at the text. The Lord rebukes Satan because he has attacked the chosen ones. Chosen Jerusalem. This perfectly reflects the grace of God. He chose Israel. He chose Jerusalem. They were his chosen people. Why did the Lord choose Israel? I have no idea. Why did he pick that stone-covered city, Jerusalem, to be his holy place? I have no idea. Why did he choose you? Why did he choose you? Why did he choose me? I have no idea, do you? Sometimes I question his choices. Listen to the testimony of Scripture about God's choices. In Deuteronomy, Moses wrote, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all all the peoples. But the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God and he is a faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandment. God doesn't choose you based on your character. You're rotten. You're not just flawed. You're not just imperfect. You are rotten to the core. I hope you do realize that, don't you? There's nothing good about you. There's nothing good about any of you or me. We are rotten, smelly sinners to the very core. Don't go thinking there's anything good about you. Don't think you're smart, intelligent, wise, or good, because you're not. 
pretty strong on that, isn't he? God doesn't choose you on the basis of your good works. All our righteousness are as filthy rags to him. Why did he choose you? I got no idea. But I know this because he chose me. Is that right? All right, you're with me. Because he chose me, Satan cannot attack me. It was not based on my good works, my good looks, my intellect. It was because of God's choice. So for him to condemn the children of Israel was to condemn the choice of God. God chose them, and it was God who disciplined them. It was God who sent them back to Babylon. It was God who put them into the fiery furnace of Babylon. Now, I'm not going to go into the passages, but the scripture often talks about the time of discipline of his children as being in a furnace, a fiery place. Notice here it says that God redeemed Israel as a brand plucked from the fire. God tossed them into the fire pit, and when the heat was just about to destroy them, and they were going to burst into flames, he reaches in and he pulls that brand out. Amos says basically the same thing. Chapter 4, verse 11 of his book. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me. It's the same old problem again, see? Now some say that this snatching of a firebrand was a proverbial saying of the day. I don't know. Probably was. But it was Moses who said that the children of Israel and Egypt was like being in a fiery furnace and that God snatched them out of that fiery furnace. So the exiles being taken out of Babylon and brought back to Israel, to the land of promise, are being snatched away from the fire, consuming fire. God rescued his people from destruction. Look with me at the acquittal of Joshua and Israel in verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Again, Joshua is a type here. He's a type, a representative of the nation. He's dressed in filthy clothes. The Hebrew expression there actually means excrement covered. Not a very good picture. The high priest was supposed to dress in pristine clothing, white robes, in order to minister before God. But here he is in filthy garments, defiled by sin. That's what this represents. So Joshua was worthy of condemnation by the Satan. But as I said, the accuser missed on one very important fact, that God had chosen Israel to be his. Now here in this verse we find another one of those theophanies, another one of those appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, before his incarnation at Bethlehem. Here he stands with Joshua, Satan, and his father in the dock, and he's going to answer the accusations of the evil one, of Satan. Let me stop and make a few applications here, or observations maybe would be better. For us today. First, as believers, 
you and I need to be able to distinguish between the accusations of Satan, the accuser of the brethren, and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It's easy to get those mixed up and start ruminating on our flaws, our past failures, our past sins. When you're saved, the Bible says your sin, as far as the east, is from the west. When we're saved, all our sinful actions have been paid for in the death of Christ. Our past, our present, and our future sin is all paid for. We tend to, however, want to continue to let those things control us, don't we? I can't serve the Lord. I can't serve the Lord. I'm such an evil person. I failed him in so many ways. I can't speak for Jesus or testify. I'm such a loser. Well, it might be true. But, you see, we're not supposed to focus on that. We're supposed to focus on the Lord living in and through us. Not who we are, but who He is. But some folks just love to hold on to their sins. You see, they become identified with who they were in the past rather than who they are in the present. I'm worthless. I'm a horrible person. And we then use those excuses to keep us from obeying the word of God to live a holy life, to be his disciple, to experience abundancy. On the other hand, there are others who make a different kind of miscalculation. They fight off any accusation of the accuser by pointing to their own merit. Some say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, because I'm a follower of Christ. You know, they use the old Stuart Smiley affirmation. Well, that's not true either. There's nothing good about you. The only thing that's good about you is Jesus Christ in you. His righteousness wrapped around you. Notice that Joshua never tries to defend himself or to excuse himself in this te- text. He never pro-offers his service to God as a Levitical priest as an excuse for the Lord to overlook his sinful state. He said nothing. It was the Lord Jesus, or God, who comes to his defense. I chose Joshua as my own. I chose the people of Israel. It's not because of any merit he had, not because of any worthiness on his part. It was because of my choice. But today we fall into this psycho babble. It's taken over the church, hasn't it? I love Jesus. Well, we just all love Jesus together so great, just loving Jesus. No doctrine, no theology. Just nonsense. Oh, I know I'm not perfect. If I hear that one more time, I think I'm going to puke all over the... What do they call this thing? Pulpit. I know you're not perfect. You're worthless. You're a worm. You're so sinful that God should send you to hell. Right? 
And the only reason he doesn't is because he chose you. It's not about you. It wasn't about Israel. It wasn't about the Jews. It was because God chose them. Joshua did have on filthy clothes. He did deserve being accused, except for the fact that he was the chosen one of God. Look with me in verse 4. The Lord spoke and said to those who were standing before him, now who are they? I don't know. Hopefully we'll find out here. Saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Oh, it must be angels. must be servants of some kind. And he said to him, see, I have taken away your iniquity. He says to Joshua, I have taken away your iniquity from you and clothed you with festal clothes. There it is. That is awesome. The Lord spoke. Now, those should have been terrifying words to anyone, but they were comforting words. It says, those who were standing before him removed the filthy garments. I assume that that's ministering angels. They, in essence, take away the figurative sins of Israel, of Jerusalem, of Joshua, who's standing there as a figure for the nation. What were these sinful acts? Well, they rebelled against God. They wandered and did things their own way. They didn't obey the written word of God. And they ended up in exile. Their unbelief was stinking up the place like excrement. They should have been condemned. They should have been punished, just as the adversary, the Satan, called for. But God said no. It's the same for you and me. Now see, the problem with the evangelical church is they want to gloss over all of this. You just become a nice person. You get smoothed into heaven. Come join us at our our church and learn to become a Christian. You sort of just get smoothed into it. There's never any crisis point where the person comes to the place where they understand that they're a sinner separated from God by their natural man. That is, they're a descendant of Adam and are sinful by nature. You don't have to do anything to be sinful and sent to hell. You're a sinner by nature. But that's all glossed over. Now you just come to church and you learn how to be a good person. We're going to fix your life. We're going to fix your marriage. We're going to get you a great job. Just come here to our seminar and we're going to teach you how to do it. Don't talk about people being sinners. That's not a popular message today, is it? But that's the truth. Conversely, the great and the wonderful truth is that God chose you to be his child if you trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you have been cleansed, had the iniquity removed by your faith in Christ. They were cleansed of sin. God says, no, we're not going to punish Israel because they've been cleansed of sin. See, I have taken away your sin. That's what God says to Israel, and he says that to you and to me. I thought there'd be an amen there. God's taken away your sin. You've been acquitted. The filthy clothes have been stripped off. Do you remember Adam and Eve? When they were in the garden, 
living a life of luxury. They didn't have a thing to worry about. Everything was provided for them. The only thing that they couldn't do was touch that one tree in the middle of the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Remember? One little, small, tiny rule. Do anything you want. You can be on your smartphone all day long. Play with your tablet all you want. Play Xbox. I don't care. Just don't touch the tree in the middle of the garden. And what did they do? You put a sign on the lawn that says don't walk on it, and what did everybody do? They come and dance on the lawn, right? And the scriptures tell us when they did, the guilt of their sins caused their eyes to be opened, and they knew they were naked. Oh, boo-boo, big mistake. There's some leaves over there. Let's go get those leaves and we'll sew them together and we'll make them and we'll cover up. That was fruitless. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't satisfy God by putting on fruit leaves. Fig leaves. He sees right through that. Just like the TSA guys do at the airport. But in Genesis 3, we see the love of God. He provided them garments of skin and clothed them. Isn't that interesting? Do you see it? Something had to die in their place. God had to slay an animal to cover their nakedness. Blood had to be shed in order for them to be right with God. Animal skins are symbolic of a right standing with God in Scripture. It's freely given. They didn't do it. They were able then to enjoy their a right relationship with God once they had the provision of God given to them. In Isaiah chapter 61, we read something very similar to this. I rejoice greatly in the Lord, for he has clothed me with righteous garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks herself with garland and a bride adorns herself with jewels. The old filthy garments are stripped off and the festal robe is given. The old sinful nature and iniquity that we have is going to be removed eventually and we will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we have a perfect standing before God because we have been declared not guilty. Joshua is a representative of Israel and he is a type of believer today. In Joshua, we see our sinful state. In him, we see that our new state is to be a high priest appointed to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not to stand any longer in the presence of God in filthy garments. We're to stand in our righteousness given to us by an act of his grace. By the way, did you notice anything that was missing in this verse? Did you notice there was no mention of in the uh, acquittal of animal sacrifices? You see, it's not a religious act or a ritual that makes one right with God. It's the declaration of God that he has chosen you and he declares you his child. 
sinless. The truth is, however, when we're out of fellowship with God, when we're not walking in harmony with him, he will send us into exile. We will lose our joy, our peace, and even our assurance. But we can never lose our justification. You see, that was accomplished by Christ on the cross. It was an act of God's mercy, not of man's works. In the temple, there was what they called the holy, uh, the mercy seat. Do you remember that? There's no mercy seat there today because there's no temple. Jesus is our mercy seat. John writes in his first epistle that he has become a propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for everyone in the whole world. How awesome is that? Propitiation means the mercy of God. The Lord Jesus Christ cleanses every sinner based on the blood spilt on the mercy seat. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that he made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, we stand before God, we stand before God, not in our own righteousness, not in our own goodness, but in the goodness of God, of his Son. That goodness, that righteousness, has been accredited to our account, which has stood in the negative since the moment we were conceived This justification is not a lifelong process in which we do enough good works into which God infuses life into us to qualify for heaven. Roman Catholicism teaches that that righteousness comes through the keeping of the commands of regular confession by penance and by receiving the sacraments. Catholic doctrine teaches that it is by good works that God grants us his righteousness over a lifetime. He infuses justification into the believer by doing these good works. That's not biblical. The Bible right here teaches that it's an act of God, a one-time judicial action in which he declares guilty sinners not guilty. Righteousness is not imputed Excuse me, it's not infused, but it is imputed. We are given clothing of righteousness. Our justification doesn't come through rituals. It doesn't come through keeping traditions or even obeying the scriptures. It's not a process. It's an instantaneous act in which the believing sinner is made righteous by God's declaration of acquittal. A a right standing with God is being declared righteous by a merciful and gracious God. Now, I don't have anything bad to say about other people who think differently than me. They can enjoy their baptisms, their rituals, and the Lord's Supper and think that equates justification The problem is it just doesn't square with what the scripture teaches. Salvation is not given for our faith. It's not a quid pro quo as lawyers like to use that phrase. It's not a do this and get that. It's extended to us, the needy, who have no means of gaining it freely. 
Just asking for it and receiving it by faith. Faith is the conduit through our justification. Like water runs through pipes, it's not the pipes that quench your thirst, it is the water. Faith is the conduit through which grace flows and saves you. Our sin was paid for by the work of Christ at Calvary, not by our own good works. His righteousness is then deposited to our account. It's accredited to us, as it says of Abraham back in the book of Genesis. And Paul sums all of this up in the book of Romans when he says this, So then, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through the one act of righteousness that resulted in justification of life to all men, for as through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, that many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one, that being Christ, the many, the many were made righteous. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There it is. We are forgiven on the basis of Christ's sacrifice in our stead. And then we are clothed in his righteousness, not our own. So when Joshua was cleansed by the declaration of God, he was then clothed wholly and totally by an act of God. Zechariah is watching all of this, and he cannot contain himself. He is so happy, he jumps up out of his seat in the middle of the action. Or was he standing? I don't know. He jumps up and notice he said, let's put a turban on his head. Look at me at verse 5. Put a turban on his head. So they, I assume that's the angels, the attendant angels, put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by and watching. Now, I don't know about you, as you read scripture, you probably don't read into it the enthusiasm. But here, Zechariah is almost jumping out of his skin. Put a clean turban on his head. The high priest needs a turban. We know that from the book of Deuteronomy. His head needs to be covered in order to serve the Lord. Get rid of that filthy one. Moses spoke of Aaron. Back when we learned all of this in Exodus and Deuteronomy, he said... There you shall make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord, and you shall fasten it with a blue cord to the turban, and it shall be on the front of the turban. Joshua was saying that God had made them holy, not on the basis of their own merit, but because of what God was doing. Put a turban on his head. You know the turban that has that plaque on it that says, holy unto God. And now in verse 6, we see Joshua's charge from the Lord. He was now ready to minister again. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua. No one likes to be reprimanded, do they? None of us like to get admonishments from other people. But here, Joshua is admonished by the angel of the Lord. Jesus lays down the two conditions for the continual blessing of the people of Israel. So he says to Joshua, If you walk in my ways and if you perform my service. The two conditions. The first condition set forth is that the people of God 
must walk in my ways. Now, notice in your English translations, look back at your Bible and notice all the my's. They're capitalized. Because this is the Lord Jesus Christ as the angel of the Lord speaking to the people of Israel. They are to walk in his ways. Remember that Israel was a pluck, a brand plucked out of the fire. The only reason to rescue a brand out of a fire, have you ever done that? Been out camping and you pull a stick out of the fire? Oh, I, I can use that stick. I can, I can use it to do marshmallows on. Did you ever do that? I'm not going to burn that one up. I got a use for it. He pulls Israel out of the fire because God had further use for it. You see, the Lord always saves people for a purpose. He saves them to be his servants. We are to be committed as brands out of the fire, as servants of God. We must allow him to live in and through us, to adopt his characters and his priorities in this world rather than the priorities of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But walking in his ways is conditional. It's up to you. You must choose to walk in his ways. While justification is instantaneous, sanctification is the process of becoming more like him. You see, the Jewish people had been saved. They'd been brought back to the land of promise. They were to experience abundancy there, but they didn't. Why? Because they didn't obey God. They didn't walk in his ways. They chose to walk according to their own ways. The basic condition for a believer to experience abundancy in this life is by living by and exercising personal piety. Don't hear that word much anymore, do you? Personal piety. Making right choices. Obeying God and living godly in this present world. As we look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in power and in glory to rule and to reign over the city of Jerusalem. The second condition that the Lord lays down here to experience abundancy for Israel and for the believer in this life is to carry out my charge. The Hebrew word that's translated as carry out speaks of Faithful, faithfully performing one's duty as a priest. I say this because the same word is used nine times in the book of Numbers chapter 3 where it speaks of the priest carrying out his duties faithfully. So we are required to both fulfill the moral law and the service requirements of the believer in the scripture. If the children of Israel met these two conditions they would enjoy three benefits according to Zechariah, according to what the Lord says here in Zechariah. We read, then you, purpose statement, then you, that's a purpose statement, will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts. We're going to look at the first two. The word then tells us that the consequence of meeting the first two conditions is these three blessings of which the first is the remnant will govern, govern my house. That is, they will have the honor and the privilege of the temple of God being active again. Instead of living in a holy land, separated from the priesthood, separated from the sacrificial system, separated from the reading of Scripture, separated from everything that they knew as Jews, they would have the honor of governing, governing his house. The, the, the priests would watch over the temple. They would govern it. They would judicially take court, take 
take over the courts. Notice, that's the second blessing. The charge of my courts. They would not only have the purity of the temple in mind, but the purity of the people. In in Ezekiel, I'll get it yet, in Ezekiel chapter 44, the Lord says, My priests, my priests shall teach my people the difference between holy and profane. Don't you wish we had some priests today teaching it? Everything you see in our culture is unholy and profane, isn't it? Aren't you sick of hearing swear words everywhere you go? Aren't you sick of hearing, seeing sex on every television program? Homosexuality rampant and jack, jammed down your throat? Aren't you sick of it? We need some priests to teach the people the difference between the holy and the profane and the unclean and the clean. That was the job of the priests. Charge of my courts and teach the people. And Ezekiel goes on and he says, And in a dispute they shall take their stand to judge. They shall judge it according to my ordinances. They shall also keep my laws, my statutes, and and the appointed fleece. The appointed feasts and my Sabbaths. The job of the priest was simple. It was many faceted, but simple. They were to guard the temple from idolatry and teach the people to live holy and to serve the Lord. Doesn't that sound a lot like what pastors and elders are supposed to be doing? That's exactly what Paul told the elders at Ephesus when he gave them this charge when he left them in the book of Acts. He said, Be on guard. Paul says to the elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Just like the Israelites wouldn't listen to the holy priests, the people today won't listen to their elders and pastors who teach them correctly. That's the problem. Everybody's an expert. Give people a Bible and they think they know everything. They read the passage one time through and they think they're experts at it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you're supposed to be subject. You're supposed to be submitted to your elders and to your pastor. You know how many times I've had people say to me, okay, pastor, you said that, I'll do it? Never. We're all independent agents. We're free agents like in baseball. We're looking for the best salary we can get. Where are the most benefits for me? I, well, I like this Sunday school. I'll go there for that. I like that evening service. I'll do that. I like that missions program. I'll go to that church. Submitted to a pastor and elder? Forget it! I'm my own boss. Why do you think Israel got in trouble? They tried to kill Moses. Didn't they? They wanted to stone him to death. He was getting direct pipeline from God. What do they want to do? Get rid of him. I don't like that pastor. He's too fat. Let's fire him. I don't like that pastor. He wears cowboy hats. Let's get rid of him. I don't like those elders. Uh, That decision they made. I just don't agree with that. I'm going to another church. Submission? (laughs) It's a joke. You want blessing and abundance in your life? Then follow what the Bible says, not what you're Society and culture teaches you. Follow what the scripture says. Obey my commands. Isn't that what this says here? And notice what the third blessing is. A little bit farther down in the text says, I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. If he's talking of angels, they will have direct access to God. 
access to me. Now, in the old dispensation, as you know, access was access to God was limited to one man, one time a year. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and they'd tie, they'd tie a rope around his leg, just in case he had some sin in his life and God struck him dead. Or maybe he had a little bit of a tipsy moment and he touched the ark. Boom, dead. How do you get him out of there? He's going to stink to all high, high heaven, isn't he? No, they got that rope and they'll pull him out. One man, one day a year, no longer. The throne of grace has opened access to all people. I don't have to go through a priest. I have direct access to God. His throne is wide open for the prayers and the access of his people. Look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, where it says this. We have access 24-7. Since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but the one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. My dear ones, we have access to God, that we may receive mercy and may find grace and help and help in our time of need. I don't know about you, but I'm before the throne of grace daily, saying, Lord, I blew it again. Don't help me get stuck in that Zegarat effect. Help me to remember that the blood of Jesus Christ paid for it. I don't need to be bound by Satan and my sins of the past. I can have a fresh start each and every day, renewed by the Holy Spirit. Forgive my sin and let's start over again today. I, can, I don't have to go to a priest and say ten Hail Marys or some other hocus pocus, do we? We go right to God and say, Lord, Lord, forgive me. Let's start over. I am a worthless sinner. The only thing that's good about me is you, Lord, living through me. Help me to release my life's choices to you. Now, Joshua was a symbol of the things that were yet to come. Look at verse 8. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, there's probably a row of priests there with him, indeed they are men who are, now get this, a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. So Joshua and his friends are all there, and they're told by the Lord Jesus to listen up. I got great news for you. My servant, who's also called the branch, he's coming. Behold, my servant, my chosen one, I have put my spirit in him, says Isaiah. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. You are my servant, in whom I will show my glory. My servant will be high and lifted up, speaking of the Son of God, and greatly exalted, the righteous one. My servant will justify many, as he will bear their iniquities. There it is. They are a symbol of what Christ is going to do in the future. He will... Fulfill the role of the priest for all believers, as I've read in Hebrews chapter 4. He is the high priest. He is the servant of God. He comes to do the will of his Father, not his own will. 
And so the priests were to be servants of God, servants of the Father. But not only is he a servant, but according to this text, he is the branch. This, again, is a picture of the future coming Messiah. We could easily translate this as not only the branch, but as a shoot or a sprout that comes from a seedling. Looking at Isaiah once again, we read of this figure being attributed to the Messiah when he says this in chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot, you probably know this from from Christmas cards, then a shoot, a branch, a sprout, will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This is a prediction that the Messiah will be from the line of David. And like a shoot, like a sprout, it will come forth. In Jeremiah, he writes and says this, The days are coming when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. There it is. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and have righteousness in the land. The future Messiah is known by many different figures in the Bible. This is just one of them. My servant, my branch, the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rejected stone, the smitten stone. All sorts of different names are attributed to the Messiah that is to come. But the most proper and descriptive name that was known of Jews for the coming king was the Messiah. Now, in verse 9, there's an abrupt change in metaphors from that of the branch, from the servant. Notice, he says, For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Here's another metaphor, a figure of the coming Messiah. There's a lot of symbolism packed into this text, isn't there? What does this stone set before Joshua refer to? Is it the Urim and the Thummim? You know, the two stones that were in the breast of the uh, pocket of the high priest? I don't think so. Could it be the breastplate that the high priest wore with 12 stones on it? I don't think so. So what is the stone? I think the answer is given right here in this text. The stone is not an earthly stone, but a precious heavenly one. Now, there are other ideas out there. Some have suggested that it was a foundational stone of the temple, but that cannot be because it doesn't have seven seven facets, or as in some of your texts say, seven eyes. This stone doesn't have seven projections, so it can't be that foundation of stones. But we do see that same phraseology, the seven eyes, used in an obscure passage in the book of Revelation. In chapter 5 and verse 6, John, in his vision, writes this about seven eyes. Listen. I saw a land standing there as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So from this we can say that it's probably an allusion to the omniscience and omnipresence of God. Seven eyes, he sees everything, right? The seven spirits sent out into all the earth, his presence is everywhere. This can be no other than the Lord Jesus Christ. His knowledge is complete. His Presence is everywhere in the, in the Holy Spirit. Now look with me at verse 10. There's an engraving on that stone. I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. What is that engraving? I have no idea. 
Like I said before, the Levitical high priest had holy unto the Lord is written on theirs. That was engraved there. But I have no idea what this engraving is. I can speculate. Would you like me to speculate? There's an engraving in the book of Revelation. Maybe you remember it. There, again, in John, in his vision, in chapter 19, might give us some help. There's a writer that comes forth that's called faithful and true. He judges righteously and he wages war, says the text. And then we read in verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. There's a name. I don't know what that name is. It doesn't tell us. Yeah, he's the only one that knows. Could it be that what's written there is something we find in the very same chapter that we're studying in Zechariah? That he has removed the sins of the land in one day? Maybe that's written on the rider of the horse, the Lord Jesus, when he comes. He's removed the sin of the land in one day. I don't know what it is, but it possibly could be. Because this is looking forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe. In chapter, 10, uh, chap- in chapter 10 of Zechariah, in verse 1, it writes this. He says this, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and impurity. So what we find here in this verse, verse 10, is sort of the climax of this vision. We're given the meaning and the purpose for all the symbols. The focus has been on the iniquity of Israel as put forth by the accuser, Satan. And then the servant of the Lord, the branch, the stone, removes the iniquity of Israel and declares them not guilty. He is able to do this because he is the righteous branch, the shoot that comes out of David. He's the Messiah, the stone the foundation stone, the rejected stone by the Gentiles. He's the stone that will crush all of the kingdoms that we see in the book of Daniel. He is the Messiah. Notice in verse 10 that he comes to rule and to reign over all the earth. In that day, that's a technical term, wherever you see that, that day or in that day, on that day, that's referring to the millennial time period. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will, be in, will invite his neighbor to sit down under his vine and under his fig tree. What in the world does that mean? Hey, Joe, you doing anything this afternoon? You want to come over to my house and sit under the fig tree? You're going to get a little wet today. What does that mean? Do you remember when the Lord called Nathaniel to follow him? Do you remember that? Where was Nathaniel sitting? Under a fig tree. And what was he doing? He was contemplating the things of God. Praying, yes. Thinking about God. He was relaxing. This is a figure that is often used in Scripture in the Old Testament to describe peace and prosperity for people. One day you and I will experience this. We will sit underneath a vine and a fig tree. Well, why do I say that? Well, because... That's the way it's used in 1 Kings chapter 4. Judah and Israel lived in safely, every man under his vine and his fig tree. There it is. 
2 Kings, verse 18. The king of Assyria said to Hezekiah, Make your peace with me, come out to me, and each will have his vine and his own fig tree. Peace and security. Finally, Micah 4. Each of them sat under their vine and under his fig tree, and no one was afraid of them, for the Lord of hosts had spoken. There it is. Someday you and I will sit in the millennial kingdom and know the peace and the joy of being with God forever. The lion will lay down with the lamb, and the sword will be beaten into a plowshare. We will know peace and security. And blessing. Okay, before we apply this text to our lives today at an individual level, we need to recognize that Zechariah was a representative of the nation of Israel, not the church, the nation of Israel. And it is prophetic in scope, this text and all of these visions. Joshua is a type figuratively representing the people and the future. These night visions tell what will happen to the nation of Israel as a whole, and secondarily, what will take place with the church. So we must understand this and see this in the panoramic prophetic scope of the whole Bible. We cannot be limited to seeing Israel's failures and their judgments, but we must see their final restoration during the millennium. Clearly, God restores his people to a right place with himself. They will once again be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The ultimate and final fulfillment of this still awaits us. But Zechariah's vision was not only applicable to the Jews, it's applicable to us. There will be a time in the millennial kingdom when the Lord will rule and reign again. People will worship him there. We will not labor in vain. The church will enjoy him along with Israel. God wants to use you just as he used Israel. And despite Israel's failure, despite the believer's sin, God will acquit you of those and clothe you in the righteousness of Christ to serve him. He wants you to be his priest, his witness, his disciple. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the example of Israel. Thank you for this writing. And even though we might not understand all of the details, Lord, we know that you have a great plan, a program for Israel and for the church. Help us, Lord, to understand it so that we might rightly see how we play within your will. Help us to go forth from this place expecting and looking forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.